listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. I'm really glad uh, to hear the stories of what God is doing around the world. I mentioned a second ago uh, just that um, uh, this summer my family and I had the chance to visit some of our global workers in northern Africa, Rob and Jody uh, and their kiddos. And since Rob is my brother-in-law, it was especially good for Leah and I to be able to make that trip with all four of our own children. I'm glad for the opportunities that we had uh, to just not only have some good family time, but then also just to connect about disciple-making movements that are taking place there in northern Africa, and to share stories and compare notes and offer perspective. I was glad to come back to this series that we're in right now called This to That, and it just seems like all these things are aligning really well in my life. And I'm going to share just a little bit more about my time there in North Africa here in just a little bit. But I wanted to start with something really simple, actually. And uh, if you can humor me for just a moment, I, I hope this makes some sense. A bag of marshmallows here. Uh, It would be my highest joy to share this with somebody. So I just want to know, is there somebody close by that likes marshmallows that would not mind having some marshmallows right here? I see that hand, Garrett. Uh, So here's the thing. This is really simple, okay? Um, I am the giver of the marshmallows. You are the receiver. I just need you to receive it. That's all. Can you do that? All right, here we go. We're going to see. Almost lost it. Almost lost. And I promise you that if, uh, if our roles were reversed, I would have lost it. Okay. Um, now, this is a very simple illustration. I'm the giver and you're the receiver. For you to receive that is easy and quite joyful, honestly, right? Free bag of marshmallows. But it would be completely different if I said to you, I want you to consume it. Now, you could. I'm sure you could over time, maybe, right? But like, I'm saying like right here, right now, in this moment, the whole thing, I want you to consume it. You might be going, uh, not sure, might get a little sick because there's a difference between receiving and consuming. But if I told you, I want you to contribute, I want you to share, then I'm sure some of the friends around, they're looking at you right now, looking at you going, yeah, that sounds great. I would enjoy that very much, actually. Um, There's a difference, right, between sharing or between uh, receiving and consuming. And I think Jesus was right. Jesus was right when he told the Apostle Paul, and he says it's more blessed to give than receive. Oh, it's a blessing to receive, right? It's just that it's more blessed to give. Church, I wonder if there are uh, some tendencies in churches today, places that have stopped keeping the mission of making disciples the main thing, that they have ceased to be a contributing church. They have become a consumer church. And did you know that a church can grow sick on self-interest? Did you know that a church can grow sick with this, what can I get out of it mentality? So may this never be us, church. May we see the value in contributing to others. I think there's a couple reasons why contributing is not more readily practiced. Number one is it's hard to serve others. It's not always comfortable. It's not always convenient. It can be hard. A second reason why we don't always contribute is because we stand opposed by the great enemy of the Great Commission. So it makes sense 
that it would be hard. So what is it that could possibly motivate us to do the right thing, to obey the commands of Scripture, and to contribute if it doesn't come naturally? What could motivate us to do that? Well, I think there's two things. One is what God commands, and the other is what God commends. What God commands and what God commends. See, the commands of Scripture, they motivate us to do what is right. If I could oversimplify this, it would kind of be like this. A four-year-old boy is given an instruction from his dad. And the boy looks at the dad and goes, why? And the father says that classic dad response, because I said so. A lot of classic dads in the room. Because I said so, right? It's his authority. It's his position in authority that motivates the obedience. So sometimes it's just God's authority that motivates our obedience. Secondly, what, what God commends can be equally as motivating. I mean, who doesn't want to receive the applause of the master, right? So it's good for us to pay attention to his authority and to what he applauds. It's good for us to pay attention to his commands and what he commends. And so today I just want to look at two passages that reflect this. In the first, we're going to see what Jesus commends. And in the other passage, we're going to see what is commanded. And from both of these, I pray that we're going to be motivated to do what doesn't come naturally for most of us and see the value of using the gifts we have received to serve others. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. That's going to be our first passage. Luke 19. I'm going to start in verse 11. Now, I wish I had time to go through this entire parable that Jesus is going to tell. I wish I had time to give it blow by blow, verse by verse, unpacking as we go along. I just don't have time for that, so I'm going to sum it up, okay? I wish I had time to tell you about what happened 25 years earlier than this passage. I wish I had time to tell you about Archelaus. I wish I had time to tell you that when Jesus starts this story, it's very likely that the people would have chuckled a little bit because it sounded kind of familiar to something that happened 25 years earlier. I don't have time, so let me sum it up. There's a nobleman, and he goes away to receive the authority to come back as king. That's where they would have laughed. It sounds too familiar to what happened to Archelaus. Look in your history books. Anyway, so Jesus is telling a story about a nobleman. He goes away. He's, he's being given authority to come back as king. Before he leaves, he has 10 servants there. He gives each servant a mina. A mina was worth about three months' wages. And he says, when I come back as king, I'm going to receive, I'm going to collect on this investment that I'm making in you. And so he leaves, and he comes back as king. That didn't happen to Archelaus. This master comes back as king, and he goes to the first servant. And the first servant made good on that investment and he produced a thousand percent more than what he was given. That's pretty good. He goes to the second servant and the servant made 500% more than what he was given. The master goes to the third servant and uh, the third servant simply hid it in a cloth. He was afraid of the harshness of his master. So not only did the master punish that quote unquote evil servant, but he killed All of those, the master killed all of those who didn't want the man to become king in the first place. Okay. What are we supposed to do with that, right? Because if we're drawing comparisons here between the master and Jesus, what are we supposed to do with that? Mark Moore in his commentary, he says, honestly, you probably shouldn't draw too many conclusions here, but Jesus is trying to make a point. And I think the point that is standing out here is actually in verse 17. 
The master says to the first servant, well done, good servant, he told him, because you have been, what? Say it, faithful. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. The master commends faithful service. I believe that our master is looking for faithful service in us. Can we say, honestly say, that our serving is faithful? Luke uses a Greek word here, pistos. It means trustworthy or reliable. This word is oftentimes used of God. God is trustworthy. God is reliable. And he's looking for people who will be like him. And when he finds them, he applauds and he rewards. I pray that we're motivated by what the master commends. And I hope it changes the way we think about this. But I also pray that we're motivated to serve by what the master commands. So now we're going to turn to that second passage. This is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Here's what Peter writes. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of God's varied grace. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. These are the commands. Peter is reminding the churches that were scattered throughout the dispersion that the end is near. And he says, "This this is how you're supposed to live until the second coming of Christ. And the command that stands out to me in this passage is this. Serve others as God's gift of grace. As stewards of God's gift of grace, excuse me. Because this is what disciples do. We serve. We obey the command to serve. Rather than always consuming the blessings of God, right? We are to be fueled by that grace to serve. While I was in North Africa, my brother-in-law shared an article with me as we were sharing perspectives and stories on uh, disciple-making movements. And this article was about the four stages of movement. And in stage number two, which is just referred to as movement, uh, there was a characteristic in that particular phase of movement where disciples were making disciples who made disciples and just multiplied. There's a particular characteristic that I'd like to highlight. And the Bible refers to it like this. It's the priesthood of believers. If you want to see where multiplication is truly taking place, it's going to be when there is a priesthood of believers. Peter talks about this just two chapters earlier from our text here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal what? Priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, God's desire for us is that we would that we would live out our priesthood. In other words, according to Peter, you're all priests. With the expectation, you will serve in that role. Look, there's nothing wrong or sinful about a church that has full-time vocational leadership. But we really don't even see a large disparity between clergy and non-clergy until the first few hundred years of the church. In other words, it's around the time of Constantine when we begin to see this as a model and a pattern 
of clergy and non-clergy. In other words, for hundreds of years, the church multiplied just fine with an understanding of everyone doing their part as the priesthood of believers. A movement of multiplication is far less likely to occur if our strategy simply or only involves inviting people to church on a Sunday morning, hoping that the programming or that the staff will get the job done. And historically, I, I would argue that true multiplication hasn't happened like that. But we do see multiplication taking place where everyone is serving, the priesthood of believers. And so I'd simply like to take our time remaining here to highlight three ways we can obey this challenge from Peter. The first one is this. Steward the grace that you have received. Steward the grace you've received. In verse 10, Peter tells us to, to steward or literally to manage God's varied graces to others. It's kind of like the parable Jesus told about the managers. We're the managers and he's the king. We're to steward the grace that we've received from him and serve others. Peter uses this word varied, referring to God's grace. His varied grace teaches us a couple things. First of all, it teaches us that God has graced his people with all kinds of gifts. It's easy, isn't it, to fall into the trap of thinking that some gifts are more important than others. That's not what the Bible teaches. They all matter. It also teaches us that um, these varied graces come from one source. It's kind of like a prism. And you've seen this before. Light comes in from one source, hits that prism, and then it splits into all of its parts. In the same way, God's, uh, God's gift to us, it comes from one source, hits that grace, and it just explodes into the full spectrum of his people. That's how grace works. A wide range of variety. And sometimes we don't even always know why we're supposed to extend grace to others and steward that grace to others until after the fact. I recently heard a story about one of my favorite rock bands, U2. Uh, they were on tour. It was their elevation tour. So this is going back a few years. And they were making plans to go through Denver, Colorado. And they wanted to set up a private lunch meeting with Christian author Philip Yancey. The reason they wanted to meet with him is because um, they had read, as a band, they had read through a couple of his books. The band chaplain, Father Jack, had led them through a couple of these books, and so they just wanted to meet the author. So they arranged this meeting with Philip Yancey's office. And about three weeks before the lunch was to occur, Philip's wife says to him, Hey, I just feel like you need to pay for this lunch. With you too. He's like, I'm not paying for lunch. Because these are multi-million dollar rock stars. I'm not, I'm not, besides, they wanted, they wanted lunch with me. They were the ones that set it up. I'm not paying for lunch. A couple of weeks later, she came up to him again. And she just said, hey, I, I really feel like you, you need to offer to pay for lunch. He said, I'm not doing it. And then finally, about a week before the lunch date, she says to him again, I think you need to pay for this lunch. And she said, oh, by the way, aren't you writing a book about grace? Don't you think you should show some? So, so uh, Fine. So he's like, all right, you know, listen to your wife, guys. So, uh, so he calls the restaurant. He gives them the credit card number ahead of time so that they don't have to have that awkward exchange at the end of the meal. Sure enough, the band shows up. I mean, the fans are outside. They're just going berserko. They come inside. There's a private room. There's Philip Yancey. Here comes you two, you know, sitting down. Bono takes a look at the menu. He sees the appetizers and he says, man, all these look great. Why don't you say we just get them all and then we'll just kind of figure out what we want. And Philip's like, yeah, okay, yeah, we can we could do that. And Bono's like, and can we get some uh, some red wine, some white wine? That sounds kind of good. And Philip's going, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, yes, sure, we could do that. Um, well, they had a great lunch. And uh, in fact, it was so good that uh, Bono turns to 
uh, Philip Yancey at some point. He says, hey, this has been great. You got to come see me. He says, just come to my house in Dublin and I would love to have you and host you. I'd love to see you. And sure enough, years later, he did. And they've uh, maintained that friendship. But um, at the end of the meal, Bono turns to Philip and he just says, oh, by the way, there's a guy on our tour. It's his birthday today. And usually we try to find a place after the show that we can celebrate all together and maybe have some cake. This is kind of a cool venue. Do you think we could maybe come back here tonight? Could you arrange that? And could we also have some birthday cake? Could you arrange that? And Philip Yancey's going, uh, yeah, no, I mean, sure. I, I guess, yeah, I could probably do that. I mean, how many people are we talking about for this party? And Bono's like, I think it's about a hundred, hundred people on tour, something like that. And it's like, Oh, a hundred people cake. Yeah. Party. No problem. Um, what I'm saying is you never know how God's going to move you to show grace to somebody. But I promise you this, Philip Yancey did not go broke. God somehow seems to know how to graciously provide for us when he calls us to graciously share with others. See, grace is, um, the grace of God is, is kinetic. It's power in motion. It comes from God through us to others. That's how it's supposed to go. And we may not even know why we're supposed to show grace to people until after the fact, but we trust the God who knows why. Not only have we been given grace from God, but Peter tells us that we've also been given God's word. Verse 11, he commands us, he says, speak the words you have received. Not only steward the grace that you have received, speak the words that you have received. What does it mean to speak God's words? Well, literally, it's understood as speaking divine oracles from God. In other words, we're to speak the words that God has already spoken. Peter's instruction here is not to speak a new word, but an established word already given by God. And there's only four times in the New Testament where this idea is communicated. This is the last of the four. And in each case, it refers to the passing along of a word from God that has already been said. So in order to serve by speaking what God has said, we must know what God has said. Did you know one of the best ways that you can serve people is to give them the word of God? Not humanistic cliche. Know the word. Be people of the word. Speak the word. This doesn't mean that you have to have the entire Bible memorized before you share it with someone. Just start by treasuring a single verse in your heart. Mull it over through the day. Give it back to God when you pray. And you might just find an opportunity to share it. So not only are we to steward the grace that we have received and speak the words that we have received, but Peter goes on in verse 11 to say, you are to serve with the strength that you have received. See, God is the one who provides us with the gifts and the talents that we use to serve. He provides the energy by which we serve. And this provision, that word provides, it gives the impression that God is the choir director. That's, it's a choral director. That's what the word provide means. It's he's the director. He's the one that decides. He's the one that directs. He's the one that provides the strength that we need to serve. There's all kinds of resources on, out there on how to discover your spiritual gift. And I think it's good for us to discover how we're wired and what we're passionate about. In Greg Ogden's book, Discipleship Essentials, he takes the various lists of spiritual gifts that we find in the New Testament. There's several of them. And he puts them into four categories. He breaks them down like this, support and speaking and signs and service. 
You can see on this chart uh, how he breaks those down. I know it's kind of a lot of information on there, so it might be hard to read. Uh, I'll do my best to break this down a little bit for you. But the gifts of support uh, would be those things that are like foundational support, skeletal strength for the ministry of the church. Carter Surgeon or excuse me, Curtis Sargent, I said that wrong, who's a modern-day whiz at disciple-making movement practices, uh, he wrote an article about these five spiritual gifts, and he uses the acronym APEST, not a pest, but APEST, A-P-E-S-T, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. He says that um, if you want to see the way that he describes describing those roles in more detail, I can give that to you later from that article if you'd like to see it. But one of the things he points out, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, that these roles are foundational to multiplication. They always come first before the other gifts are expressed. Again, all the gifts from, come from God. All the gifts are important, but there is an order. And Curtis Sargent would say that these five come first in any movement. The speaking gifts, that's kind of self-explanatory. Things like teaching, sharing the good news with someone or encouraging them or providing wisdom. And oftentimes we think that, that uh, if we have the spiritual gift of speaking, that means we're good at public speaking. That's not always the case. I mean, have you ever received a, wor- a timely word of encouragement that just went straight to your heart from someone? I mean, that can be the gift of encouragement. That's a speaking gift. The third category that Ogden notes is that of signs. Uh, Sometimes these gifts are debated in the church today. Some will say that they don't exist and haven't existed since New Testament times. I disagree with that idea. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that these gifts are only for a period of time and then they will cease. We might have to have a discussion about the degree to which these gifts are practiced, but I do think that we see them exercised today and we'll continue to see them exercised until the return of Christ, when the perfect comes. That's what I believe Paul is going to say in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. The last category here is truthfully one that I I believe applies to the most people. And these are the gifts of service. These gifts of service, you can see it's the longest list. It's varied like God's grace. But no matter how we exercise those gifts, I promise you, it will be, it is to be for the building up of God's people. It's not about discovering your gift just for self-gratification or even just for self-awareness. Listen to me. Your spiritual gift is always about what will pursue and care for others. However God has wired you, it's going to be about pursuing people. And caring for people. I mean, it's, it's good to know our spiritual gift. In that, in that beautiful key passage in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul starts it with verse 1. He says, now regarding spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be what? Unaware. It's good for us to be aware about these things. And perhaps for us to become more aware of God's desire for, you, for us to serve, we need to do like what Jessica was telling us earlier and come to Ignite on August 27th. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, he said, I want you to fan into flame the gift of God that you received. Maybe it's time for you to come to Ignite and get that gift flamed up. And I would encourage you to come that night. Most of the uh, commentaries, though, that I studied on this passage... They place the emphasis not on knowing your spiritual gift, but on discovering it by serving. Did you hear that? 
It's less about knowing your gift and more about discovering it through serving. One commentator wrote this. He said, gifts are discovered in service. We know from Jewish history that to truly learn something, you had to put it into practice. It's not just about knowing it up here. You actually had to do something. So that's why in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, and he says, I want you to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. These religious leaders, they knew that verse. They just didn't know that verse. We learn by putting it into practice. And we've found that this model holds up with just about anything we learn. Educators will sometimes refer to this as the learning uh, pyramid. It's the best way to actually learn something. Now, depending on who you talk to, these percentages might be a little bit different, okay? But this is the way that we learn. And you can see from this that the best way to learn something is by doing it and teaching others to do the same. Ironically, what I'm doing right now is not the best way for you to learn. And yet Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we expose ourselves to a model of learning that doesn't necessarily always produce action. Now listen, I'm not opposed to preaching. Jesus was a preacher. But he also prioritized serving and the making of disciples, which looks a little bit different than Sunday morning church. I think in order for us to make disciples who make disciples like he commanded us to do, we might just have to do things a little bit differently. The best way to learn about serving, the best way to learn how God has gifted you to serve is simply to serve. William M. Ezem would say it this way, this way in his book, um, uh, Sacred Cows Make Gourmet Burgers. He would say this, Accomplishing the mission of the church is the primary reason for discovering spiritual gifts. Let me flip that around. The primary reason... For discovering your spiritual gift is to accomplish the mission of the church. Peter is giving us clear ways on how we can accomplish the mission. We move from having a consumer mindset to a contributor mindset as each of us steward the grace we've received, speak the words we've received, serve with the strength we've received. And I just want to wrap up with two questions. How and why? How are we supposed to do this? How are we we supposed to use our spiritual gifts? I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes we hear messages like this and our natural tendency is to assume that we've got to make ourselves even busier. Oh, great. Sign up to serve. Yeah, easy. I'll just add it into my schedule. Thank you very much. I'm not against that, you understand. I don't mind asking the church to pour themselves out for kingdom work. I don't apologize for that. It's the greatest work in the universe at every level. But I understand how this can come across. You know what, though? Maybe we should. (laughs) Maybe we should sign up, right? Maybe we should do something. We should sign up to serve it. Maybe in children's ministry or in the nursery, or we should, um, you know, sign up as as the greeter ministry or lead a life group or start a simple church or be on the security team or whatever. I don't know. Maybe we're supposed to do that. But I also wonder if maybe I could just cast... What I believe is maybe a a bit more of a compelling vision of, I think, what God wants to do in his people. And I'd like to use a simple illustration. I'm going to run over here for just a second to grab this. If I could, I'd like to share something with you that was passed along to me by uh, my former preacher when I was growing up, Randy Garris. And I'm going to get rid of that so you don't cheat, okay? But it goes like this. 
If God said, I want you to love a town. If I want you to love a town, how would you do that? So this is what Randy drew for me. Kind of looks like this. That is a town. Trust me. I know it looks like abstract art. So if you need to, you can squint and tilt your head. That's how you know it's abstract. Okay. Randy said, if if you're going to love a town, how would you do it? In the streets and the alleys and the roads and the sidewalks. He said, what I would do is I would plant myself at an intersection. And I would stay in that intersection and I would serve and love people and share the good news with people. Whoever comes through that intersection. If I'm going to love the whole town, I would just plant myself in an intersection. He says, the good thing about healthy churches is that healthy churches have quite a few intersections. Like this one right here. This could be what you're doing right now. This is an intersection. Sunday morning worship. This is an intersection. But we also have life groups. That's another intersection where you can connect and serve. We have, you know, ministry teams where you can plug in, serve in the nursery, greeter team, stuff like that, serve in the band. Um, And then there's also other things like, you know, Thursday afternoons, food pantry. We've got special services like a Christmas Eve service or a Good Friday service, you know, like these are ways that we can connect and intersect with people. These are good. These are healthy. It's not wrong for you to participate in all these things. But one of the things Randy pointed out is he said, over time, as someone is growing in the Lord and they're understanding their spiritual gifts all the more, he said, I began to notice a pattern. People started to pull out of some of these intersections until maybe there was only like one or two left. And our first reaction to that is oftentimes, oh no, something's wrong. We got to fix this. And he said, it kind of depends. Because what he found is that as people connect in those intersections, they become more passionate and they just plug in and begin to make disciples where they are. He gives the illustration of a young couple who taught four-year-olds on Sunday mornings. And um, they loved it. They absolutely loved teaching four-year-olds. And the preacher calls them up one night and says, hey, we're about to start a new life group on Tuesday night. Want to know if you'd want to be a part of that? No. Oh, uh, okay. Why is that? Well, see, Tuesday nights, uh, we, we go calling and visiting the families on these, for these four-year-olds. We love these kids, but uh, we know that they have some rough families. And so we just go and we pray and we encourage them. And you understand what they're doing here? I think I could sum up what they're doing like this. The quality of your yeses will determine the quantity of your noes. Say the right yes. Live in a place with the right yes. Um, Maybe you're not currently serving in any type of ministry within the church or outside. Maybe you're feeling some conviction from Peter here to, to do something. That's great. We will always champion that. We will always encourage that. It's needed. But I believe one of the best ways for us to move from a consumer mindset to a contributor mindset is this. Take responsibility for the intersections you already have with the gifts you've already received and faithfully steward God's grace to others in that intersection. What is your intersection? Here's the second question to wrap up. Why? Why do we even talk about this? Why do we even talk about the value of serving? Well, Peter answers that question for us immediately in our text, verse 11. He says this, So that, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. 
To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Do you want to know why we continue to champion the cause of the multiplication of disciples? Do you want to know why we're motivated to try new things? Do you want to know why we're not afraid to ask hard questions and do hard things and fight what oftentimes feels like an uphill battle at all times? Just so we can see the multiplication of disciples here in Springfield. Do you want to know why? Well, the purpose is to glorify God greatly. We're not doing this just to be cool. We're not doing this to be radical. We're not doing this just to be faddish or because we're bored. We believe that when disciple makers serve with the energy and the gifts that God has provided them, they not only fulfill God's intention for their lives in this world, but they bring him great glory. Here's the bottom line of what I came here to say today. Christ is glorified when disciple makers faithfully steward God's gift of grace to others by serving where they are. And I just want to close by asking you a few questions. Maybe you need to get your phones out and take a picture of these slides. It's going to be on two slides. I just want you to uh, consider these things rather than just moving on from here and not having any uh, way of considering these things because growth and change will come as we grow and change. Growth and change in this church, growth and change in this community will come as we grow and change. And I believe these questions will help us do that. Here they are. How are you stewarding the grace of God to other people? Not are you, but how are you? How are you speaking God's words to people? How are you serving with the strength that he has provided? And and if you're doing all of these well, then good job. Keep it up. I would encourage that. But if not, what is keeping you from doing so? What's keeping you from contributing? What's keeping you from serving? What intersections are you proactively using to serve others with the gifts that you've received? Where has God already placed you? And is there anyone you can reach out to this week who can help you take that next step to exercise your priesthood and serve. Maybe you need a little bit of wisdom from God on how to apply this text or you need prayer. I just want you to know that here in a moment, we're going to have a priesthood of believers around this room. We call them our prayer team. They'd love to pray with you about these things. In just a few moments, I'm going to be in our decision point area out these doors and I would love to talk with you and pray with you or maybe you just need to fill out the form online and the staff can respond to you on that. Decisions that you need, prayers that you need. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.